Gresham College presents Britain in the 20th century Progress and Decline The Character of the Post-War Period by Professor Vernon Bogdanor CBE FBA Emeritus Gresham Professor of Law now, Ladies and gentlemen, these lectures are a continuation of those that I gave last year on British political history in the 20th century. And uh, last year I reached to uh, Second World War, and this set of lectures is on the post-war period. And I thought it might be helpful to begin with a few general reflections on the post-war period as a whole. Now, the most obvious contrast with the first part of the uh, series is that in the second half there are fortunately no great wars and, on the whole, stability and continuity in British life and in particular, a continuity of the main political parties. Now, the uh, years before 1945, the first half of the century, first part of the century, was marked by a replacement um, of the Liberals as the main party of the left by the Labour Party. And in 1945, the Labour Party won its first, first overall majority in its history, a landslide majority. And today, the same two parties, the same two major parties the Conservatives and Labour, who were the major parties in 1945, they're still the same major parties. And the Liberals in 1945 were very much a third party, and their successors, the Liberal Democrats, are also uh, a third party. So perhaps there's been much less change than some people imagine. People always talk about a changing and volatile world. But perhaps less change than imagined, and perhaps less change than in the first half of the century marked by two world wars. But obviously there have been great changes. And to illustrate those, uh, I will give two quotations from the 1940s, which I think both, both of which will strike you as anachronistic today. The first is from Winston Churchill in a speech at the Mansion House in, in 1942, in the middle of the war, when he said, We mean to hold our own. I have not become the King's First Minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. Well, of course, uh, the British Empire was liquidated fairly soon after he made that speech. My second quotation is from the Labour Party's election manifesto of 1945. It said, the Labour Party is a socialist party and proud of it. Its ultimate purpose is the establishment of a socialist commonwealth of Great Britain. Now, some people say that the present leader of the Labour Party, Ed Miliband, has moved a bit to the left, but I will put a bet with you, you won't find language of that kind in the next Labour Party election manifesto. But at that time, socialism was thought to be the wave of the future. And uh, in particular, uh, it was given, people thought, a great push by the war. And uh, Attlee, the leader of the Labour Party, uh, 1935 and Prime Minister from 1945-51, he said this during the war. He said, those who count progress only in terms of seats won and of the growth of the numbers of the professed adherents of the party miss the real significance of what has happened. The outstanding thing is not so much the growth in the strength of the forces which attack the citadel of capitalism as in the loss of the outworks the crumbling of the foundations and the loss of morale of the garrison. In other words, that 
people weren't willing to defend what he called capitalism in this confident way they had been in the 1920s and 1930s and perhaps were to be again uh, later on. But at that time, he said that the ideological defense of capitalism is very weak and socialism is, is, is the seemingly the wave of the future. Now, what he meant by socialism was a new form of society based on the principle of nationalization, which he called common ownership, the common ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange, which was in Clause 4 of the Labour Party Constitution until 1995, when Tony Blair removed it. Um, but more than that, it wasn't just a mechanical and institutional change that they were thinking of. It was this change as a means to a change in the nature of society, to create the good society, a society not based on acquisition and greed, but on the principle of fellowship, the so supposed socialist principle of fellowship. Now, um, it's clear that um, uh, both of these quotations uh, are really very much of the past. And I think it would have been clear much earlier than, than, than today. I think if you'd put those quotations of people in the mid-1960s, they'd have thought they were rather old-fashioned. And uh, it was going to be very clear after the war that Britain was no longer an imperial power. Uh, George Orwell said at the end of the war that the next 10 years would show whether Britain remained a great power. But just after that 10 years came the Suez Crisis of 1956, which showed that Britain could not act independently when opposed by the United States, and that Britain had therefore become a second-ranking power. Now, the Labour Party uh, has also clearly abandoned its commitment to socialism, at least in the form in which Attlee put it forward. And it faced a great problem uh, really, oddly enough, a problem deriving, I think, from its success, from the success of the Attlee government. Because, I mean, some of you may have uh, been here when I gave lectures on the 1920s and 1930s. And if you'd said at that point that Britain would become a society in which everyone had a job, there was full employment, which there was in the 1950s, that it had a national health service which was free and open to everyone and universal, that it had a welfare state gathering guaranteeing to everyone a, a social security minimum so that hardly anyone would be in poverty. If you'd said in the 1920s or 30s that these things would happen very soon in Britain, first I think people wouldn't have believed you, but they would have said uh, if these things do come about, then that's utopia. That's absolutely marvellous. But the point is that when it came about in the 1950s and 60s, people didn't think it was utopia and they wanted different sorts of things. And so the uh, socialist ideal gradually uh, came under criticism. Now, as I said, the socialist um, idea wasn't just mechanical, wasn't just nationalization, but the aim was to create a new form of society. And I'll give you another quotation from a speech that Attlee made in the 1950 general election campaign in Falkirk in Scotland. Uh, he said this, I feel rather tired when I hear that you must only appeal to the incentives of profit. What got us through the war was unselfishness and an appeal to the highest instincts of mankind. What is getting us through in these difficult days is a far greater sense of responsibility due to the fact that men and women feel they have a far greater stake in the country than they ever had before. And again, I don't think that's a language you'd hear from any 
leading politician today that they should forget about profit and incentives and, and rely on the uh, principles of fellowship. Now, uh, it's understandable, perhaps, in, in terms of the, the, all this, that Britain no longer a great power, uh, the socialist dream not come about, that some people should see the post-war period as a period of decline, certainly from the high hopes of the 1940s. And I think one central theme, perhaps the central theme of the post-war period, is a decline of national self-confidence, confidence in British institutions and in the British constitution, parliamentary system, which seemed in 1945 to have triumphed. And immediately after the war, uh, most people thought that whatever the hardships, Britain was better governed than any other country in the world, and the way things were done in Britain was much better than the way they were done anywhere else. But that gradually began to disappear, that view. And with the decline of empire, Britain seemed to have lost its role in the world. And in 1962, a former um, American Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, said that Britain has lost an empire and is looking for a role. Now, one role seemed obvious to many people at the time, but it's uh, proved a highly contentious matter, indeed still highly contentious, is a role in Europe. And it's highly uncertain and difficult. And Europe was an issue which split both of the major parties. The Labour Party in the 1980s led to a breakaway of the Social Democrat Party, which then joined the Liberals. And the Conservatives were split from top to bottom on the issue in the 1990s. And I think it's fair to say the Conservatives are still split between those who think our role is in Europe and those a large, larger number who uh, think it isn't. And it's interesting, as, uh, as you know, there's a current demand for a referendum on whether we should stay in Europe or not. And one recent opinion poll said that 51% of British people thought we should leave the European Union. So it's a highly contentious matter. But in the 1960s, a lot of people who saw themselves as forward-looking said the replacement for empire should be in Europe. And we no longer have an empire, but we can lead the Europeans, perhaps, and play an important role there. But it's fair to say that Britain hasn't made up its mind over a period of 50 years. It's just 50 years since Harold Macmillan made the first application to join the European community then was. It was in August 1961. Over the 50 years, the country still hasn't made up its mind, basically, whether it sees itself as being European or not. But, of course, the main reason why people think we've declined, I think, is economic. Uh, and that, in a way, is odd, because our post-war rate of growth was much higher than it was before the war. If you look at the years 1921 to 39, growth was pretty miserable on average. It was 1.1%. From 1948 to 62, it was 1.9%. High, not only by the interwar standards, but by most historic British standards. And, uh, of course, the post-war years have seen the growing spread of consumer affluence. But when people speak of decline, they don't mean decline as compared with what Britain was like once, but decline in terms of comparisons with countries on the continent, particularly perhaps Germany and perhaps also Japan, and they say these countries are growing faster. Now, you may argue perhaps that was inevitable once they'd recovered from the war, but perhaps there are certain features about those societies that allow them to grow faster and we can't. Uh, it's as if, uh, you might say, you're... Um, a pretty good 100-yard uh, runner. 
And um, last year, you could run the 100 yards in five minutes and a half. This year, you can run the 100 yards in five minutes. You might be pretty pleased, but then you might say, oh, yes, but many years ago, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. He Sorry, what am I talking about? Uh, the mile, not the 100 <laughs> yards. I beg your pardon. Uh, 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 that's an illustration of premature senility. <laughs> um, start again, start again. You can, you, can run, you can run the mile, you can run the mile in, um, in, in, in five and a half minutes uh, last year. This year, you can run it in um, five minutes. You're doing pretty well. But then someone says to you, well, 60 years ago, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. And that will make you miserable, but you might not be able to run the mile. That might be just beyond your capacity. And the point I'm trying to make, um, I hope it's clear through this muddled example, but I mean, <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to make is it, there might be certain features about British society that mean, just mean we can never grow as much as the Germans and Japanese, and we just make ourselves miserable if we compare ourselves with them rather than what we used to do in the past. And those features of British society might be the very same features that make Britain a stable and reasonably happy country. And that Britain, uh, I think I mentioned when I talked about Lloyd George last year, Britain put a lot of effort into securing conciliatory relations between the two sides of industry and uh, in society in general. It may be those factors prevent us having the dynamism uh, which uh, mean that we are a rapidly growing economy. Now, uh, I think the post-war period divides reasonably into two main phases. And the first is up to 1979, when Margaret Thatcher came to power, when you have really an alternation between the Labour and Conservative parties in government. By contrast with the pre-1939 period, when the Conservatives were very dominant. And then in 1979, you've got 18 years of single-party government, first with Margaret Thatcher and then with John Major, the longest period of single-party government since the Napoleonic Wars and then succeeded by the longest period of single-party government by a left-wing majority since before the First World War, the Blair and Brown governments, 13 years. But I think more important than simply those kind of mechanical changes is the great change, which I think dated actually from slightly before Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1979, which was a growing scepticism towards the role of the state. Now, you can argue that one main theme of British politics from 1900 until the mid-1970s, was an increasing confidence in the role of the state. If you look at 1900, the average British person, provided he or she kept out of the hands of the police and didn't commit a crime, would have nothing whatever to do with the state. The state wouldn't impinge. There was no uh, health insurance, no unemployment insurance, nothing to connect you with the public authorities. But gradually, all that changed. In the First World War, before the First World War, liberal reforms uh, and so on. And this confidence in the role of the state, I think, was strengthened by the Second World War, the wartime spirit, the nation all pulling together, which led to a strong sense of community and trust, and support for the wartime leaders like Churchill and Attlee, who'd successfully led us through these rather dangerous times. And of course, during the war, the state increased its powers enormously. And in the economy, the market, was, the market system was completely suspended and the state decided the allocation of resources. And people came to think it had been effective and that planning was more effective than the market and that the state would do better, we'd do better if the state uh, uh, controlled industry as well. Then it was said the state should have responsibility to secure full employment. We didn't want to go back to the interwar years of mass unemployment. Uh, the economist John Maynard Keynes had a lot of influence on all that, of course. 
And then people also said the market system was very unfair and it couldn't provide for social welfare. So the state should take over responsibility of social services, which should normally be free and financed out of taxation. And again, I'll give you a quote that sums up the uh, post immediate post-war period, which is, has a notoriety, from a politician called Douglas Jay, who was an economic advisor to Attlee, then became a Labour MP and minister. He wrote a book in 1947 called The Socialist Case, in which he said this, in the case of nutrition and health, just as in the case of education, the gentleman in Whitehall really does know better what is good for people than the people know themselves. And that came to be translated into the man in Whitehall knows best. It was used against the Labour. The man in Whitehall knows best. Now, when in, uh, people began to worry about the decline of the British economy in the late 1950s, I say, not that it was doing badly historically, but doing badly compared with other countries. They said the natural answer to the problems we faced was to increase the power of the state. And this began with the Conservative government, Harold Macmillan's government, uh, introduced policies of planning in the 1960s, uh, an incomes policy. And Harold Macmillan, uh, very strongly influenced by his experience of the 1930s, he'd been uh, MP for Stockton, a very depressed area during that time, and uh, he wanted the state to play a larger role to ensure that the economy improved. And that was all continued by the Labour government, which succeeded, Harold Wilson's government, then Heath, and then Labour again in, under Wilson and Callaghan mm. until 1979, when it collapsed in the winter of discontent. And since then, there's been some scepticism concerning the role of the state. And it's not been pushed back to where it was before the state increased its powers. The welfare state still survives, and some of the assumptions that are there of 1945 still survive, but by no means all of them. But I think the main casualty of post-war ideological progress has been the idea of planning, which was so strongly supported in 1945. That is now seen planning, even I think by people in the Labour Party, perhaps on the left, as part of the problem, not part of the solution. And the state is seen as part of the problem and not part of the solution by many people. But as I say, all was very different uh, in 1945 when the Labour Party won its first overall majority and the uh, government was headed by uh, Clement Attlee. And the great uh, enigma and paradox about Attlee, because uh, in 2004, a group of academics was asked to rate the prime ministers, uh, academics in history and political science, I should say, rate the prime ministers of the 20th century. And the vast majority said that he was the greatest prime minister of the century. And his government is often acclaimed as a success story of post-war Britain. But there's a discrepancy between the massive changes which the Attlee government introduced and the seemingly minuscule stature of the man who presided over it, who was elected leader of the Labour Party in 1935 as a stopgap, but remained leader for 20 years, the longest leader of any major political party in the 20th century. The next is Margaret Thatcher, for 15 years. Now, Attlee um, was born in 1883 in the Victorian age. He went to public school in Oxford, where he had on the whole undistinguished career. His only achievement was to gain a half-blue at billiards. Um, he, um, <coughs> he was a strong conservative and, as he said, imperialist. But then, after taking his degree, he qualified as a solicitor, but he did what many uh, students did in those days. He went to work in boys' clubs in the East End, and he said the um, 
sight of conditions in the East End turned him into a socialist because he said he didn't think the people he met were in any sense inferior, the poor people, to the people he'd grown up with, but yet they had a much harder life. And uh, he was a socialist of the left and worked really um, in a fairly anonymous way in these boys' clubs. But unlike many on the left in 1914, he uh, volunteered for the army. Most people on the left uh, at that time were opposed to the First War. He wasn't, he supported it. And indeed, he fought at Gallipoli. And he was always rather proud of his military career. And during the interwar years, he was generally known as Major Attlee. That was his title. Now, after the war, he was encouraged to go into politics, and he became mayor of Stepney in 1919 and 1920. And then in 1922, he was elected MP for Limehouse. And um, he said that uh, the aim of the Labour Party uh, was to ensure that slumps and poverty would be abolished. And he said, I took part in the Great War in the hope of securing lasting peace and a better life for all. We were promised that wars would end that. The men who fought in the war would be cared for and unemployment, slums and poverty would be abolished. He had junior office in the first two Labour governments, which were minority governments. In the second one, he was briefly postmaster general when that government collapsed and Ramsay MacDonald formed the national government. And as some of you may remember, that uh, election um, uh, led to a landslide victory for the national government and a landslide defeat for Labour, which had just 52 seats in the general election of 1931. And almost all the major figures of the Labour Party all but one of the cabinet were defeated. And uh, the only cabinet minister left was George Lansbury, an elderly pacifist, who became leader. And Attlee, simply because he'd survived, became number two. And he was then appointed in 1935 when Lansbury retired. He was appointed leader seemingly as a stopgap. But as I say, he lasted 20 years. And uh, as I say, Margaret Thatcher lasted 15. But Margaret Thatcher was thrown out after he was actually retired voluntarily and with his reputation high. Now, when Attlee became leader of the Labour Party, um, Hugh Dalton, um, another leading figure, said rather sadly, a little mouse shall lead them. And Beatrice Webb, who heard him speak in 1940, said, he looked and spoke like an insignificant elderly clerk, without distinction in the voice, manner or substance of his discourse. To realise that this little non-entity is the parliamentary leader of the Labour Party and presumably the future Prime Minister is pitiable. The same year, a newspaper magnate, Cecil King, described him as of very limited intelligence and no personality. If you heard he was getting £6 a week in the service of the East Ham Corporation, one would be surprised he was earning so much. <laughs> now. Um, Part of his appeal to the Labour Party was precisely that he wasn't charismatic. That the Labour Party, with Ramsay MacDonald and the supposed betrayal of 1931, had had enough of charismatic leaders who thought they knew better than the Labour Party. They wanted someone who represented it. And in that sense, Attlee did. He saw himself not as a leader, but as a mouthpiece of the party. And he said to the party conference in 1953, I am only here to carry out your will. And he said the great quality of the Prime Minister is being a good chairman, able to get others to work, which was his great skill. He had a lot of very difficult people to work with, many of whom disliked each other intensely, and he held them together. 
But more than that, uh, Attlee was seen as um, someone who understood the nature of working class life. And the Labour Party, as you'll remember, uh, was formed to give representation to the organised working class. It wasn't that he was from the working class, that didn't matter, but he had an experience and sympathy with working class conditions which he'd gained in the East End of London. Indeed, he had the strongest experience of grassroots Labour and socialist politics of any Labour leader and understood the Labour Party very well. And he said uh, that the Labour Party had to be led from left of centre. It was typically unclear whether he meant left of centre of the political spectrum or left of centre of the Labour Party. He typically left that unclear. But he always wanted Anarin Bevan, who was on the left, to succeed him, but of course that did not happen. And he, and he held together the Labour Party. His great weakness was that, like so many of that generation in the Labour Party, he was rather ignorant of economics. And when there were economic crises, which did beset that Labour government quite frequently, um, he lost his authority and um, he was unable to give a lead. And during the first economic crisis of the Labour government in 1947, which was a crisis caused by trying to make the pound convertible, uh, which led to uh, an outflow of, of, of cash from the country and um, a rapid end to convertibility, there was an attempt to remove him. And the uh, attempt replacement was going to be Ernest Bevin, the trade union leader who was foreign secretary. And Bevin, I think, could have become leader of the Labour Party. I think it might have been better, possibly, if he had. But anyway, he said he didn't want to, on the rather patronising grounds, that the little man has never done me any harm. Um, so Bevin remained where he was, and so did Attlee. Um, uh, now, Attlee wasn't just a cipher, it's fair to say. On a few crucial issues, he did make a lot of difference. The rapid withdrawal from India uh, was largely his decision. Uh, the uh, decision that Britain should become an atomic power was largely his decision with Bevin. And those who think that prime ministerial power is a recent uh, invention should consider what Attlee, not normally thought of as a strong prime minister, how he conducted the issue. Because he first set up a committee to consider whether we should have become an atomic power, and the economics ministers said that we couldn't afford to do so. So we then set up another committee from which they were excluded, which said that we should become an economic power. Uh, most of the cabinet were not aware of this decision, and nor MPs, until it was given in an answer to a parliamentary question about the defence estimates, as a kind of casual aside that we were spending so much on developing an atomic bomb. And when Attlee was later asked, uh, after he'd retired, why he didn't tell his ministers, the cabinet ministers, about this decision, he said some of them weren't fit to be trusted with secrets of that kind. <laughs> so prime ministerial matter uh, um, uh, leadership is not something new. Now, his greatest weakness was that he could not inspire. And his obituary in the Times, when he died in 1967, said, much of what he did was memorable, very little of what he said. Now, perhaps that didn't matter too much because, the, oddly enough, the election that Labour lost in 1951, it actually got a higher vote than the Conservatives. It was partly a quirk of the electoral system. And it got the highest vote in its history in 1951 when it lost the election. And the second highest vote ever won by any British political party. The highest was won by John Major, another unheroic leader, in 1992. 
they got many more votes than Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair. Now, the second in command of the government, as I've implied, was Ernest Bevin, who had been the great trade union leader at the time of the general strike. It was widely thought he would be Chancellor, but he was made Foreign Secretary. But nevertheless, he had a huge influence on the whole of the government. And he made a very interesting comment when he was appointed Minister of Labour in Churchill's coalition government in 1940. He said, Gladstone was at the Treasury for 50 years. I want to be at the Ministry of Labour for 50 years. What he meant was that Gladstonian economics, being careful with money, if you like, had dominated Britain for 50 years. He wanted his conception of the labour movement and the trade unions to be there for 50 years. And what he meant by it was this, that organised labour should be seen as part of the state which should be consulted before measures were passed affecting its interests. Now, during the general strike, he said, in the 1920s, labour was treated as just a factor of production by the Conservative governments. That they, were, they would pass policies, they wouldn't consult the trade unions, people would be thrown out of work as a result or put on difficult circumstances. That shouldn't happen again, and that in future all governments, whether Labour or Conservative, should have to consult the trade unions before taking actions which affected them. In other words, the trade unions after the 1920s were moving away from the idea that they were somehow in opposition to the state, they were going to become part of the state. And this was symbolised in the 1930s by the General Secretary of the Trade Union Congress, Walter Citrine, colleague of Bevins, accepting from the national government a knighthood that they were just as much a part of the state as people uh, in business. Now, uh, Bevins' idea um, lasted uh, until the winter of discontent in 1979. You may say it was carried out to a level of caricature whereby the trade unions were not just consulted on matters of policy, but claimed to have a veto on matters of policy and said, if government doesn't do what we want, we will go on strike. We will use the strike weapon, which Bevin was very cautious about using. And uh, you may say the trade unions in the end destroyed that very strong position they had under mm -hmm. Ernest Bevin, so they've lost that consultative arrangement, which existed till 1979 under Conservative as well as Labour governments. But the public sector strikes in that year destroyed that and one Labour supporter of the time said it was the public sector workers who put Margaret Thatcher into power and she thanked them after that in her own individual way. <laughs> now the third um, most uh, significant member of the government I think was uh, Narin Bevan um, and uh, Churchill always used to uh, put the emphasis on the second syllable because he rather liked Bevin, but did not like Bevan. And uh, uh, Bevan was on the left of the Labour Party, um, the son of a miner, and he was the only leading minister in the Attlee government who had not been in the wartime coalition. And he was given the key position of Minister of Health and Housing and the architect of the National Health Service. Now, later on, there was a rise of a fourth character uh, in the uh, government who challenged Bevan, which was Hugh Gateskill. And Hugh Gateskill uh, had a very rapid promotion. He entered Parliament in 1945 uh, at the age of 39. By the end of the Labour government in 1951, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer and second man in the government. And he was a new type of figure in the Labour Party, 
because he came from uh, what you might call the educated professional university classes, the kind of people who now dominate well, both parties, but the Labour Party perhaps in particular. He'd been an, he'd been an economics don at London University before going into politics. And he didn't have the kind of background in the working class movement that the older leaders had. And when Gateskill became Chancellor in October 1950, Nairon Bevan wrote a letter to Attlee protesting about the appointment, saying that Gateskill had no roots in the labour movement. He was rootless, he didn't understand, he had no experience of working class life, and therefore it was a, um, a bad appointment. And this rivalry between Gateskill and Bevan, and Bevan continued. Uh, both of them died early. Bevan in 1960, Gateskill in 1963, played a large part in keeping Labour in opposition uh, in the 1950s. And it reached uh, a climax in something I will describe later in a battle in the national, over the National Health Service in 1951 over the seemingly trivial issue, but I think quite important symbolic issue, of whether you should introduce charges for false teeth and spectacles. And that led to the resignation of Bevan from the government and, in effect, the breakup of the Labour government. Now, the Labour Party won the general election uh, in 1945 with a majority of 146. Um, a great shock to many people, though uh, there was just one opinion poll at that time, Gallup opinion poll, and it gave absolutely the accurate prediction of the result um, on the day of the election. It gave absolutely the, the correct figures, but there was only one opinion poll, and no one believed it. Uh, everybody thought that uh, Winston Churchill would be bound to win the election. And, uh, indeed, the Labour Party leaders themselves thought that Churchill would win, because at the end of the war, Churchill made a proposal that the coalition be continued, and that was turned down by the Labour Party. Now, later on, it was found out what had actually happened, that Churchill made this proposal after consulting Attlee and Bevin, and they both said, yes, let's continue the coalition. Uh, in other words, they didn't want an election at which they thought they'd be defeated. But when they took that proposal to the National Executive of the Labour Party, they were actually defeated on that proposal, so they were driven out of the coalition against their own wishes. That was known later. It wasn't known at the time that that was going to happen. Now, if you'd followed opinion polls, the Gallup poll uh, was introduced into Britain in 1937. There'd be no doubt that the Labour Party was going to win the election. Uh, they were 12% ahead in the opinion polls at the time of the election. Sorry, they were 12% ahead in the opinion polls in February 1945, six months before the election in July. In July, they were 6% ahead. Shortly after the publication of the Beveridge Report in December 1942, they were 18% ahead. So they had a huge lead. A lot of people, when writing about the election, mentioned the way Churchill conducted the campaign. He um, made an extreme attack on the Labour Party, saying you couldn't introduce socialism without some form of Gestapo, which seemed rather odd when um, you'd been working with these people, the Labour Party people in government, and people didn't think Attlee was very much like Hitler or Himmler, and uh, it was rather, uh, rather foolish. But um, there's no evidence that the election campaign altered people's minds at all. Indeed, you may argue that without Churchill, the Conservatives would have done even worse. And I think the reason for um, 
what happened in the uh, election must be sought not in the campaign, but what had happened before uh, in the growth of ideas of social responsibility uh, and socialism. Now, um, Attlee uh, wrote to um, a Labour Party theorist in 1945. He said, although you are a theorist, and I am only a working politician, I think that I give more and you give less attention to changes of conception than to legislative achievements. For instance, I have witnessed now the acceptance by all the leading politicians in this country and all the economists of any account of the conception of the utilisation of abundance. From 1931 onwards in the House, I and others pressed this. It was rejected with scorn. It is now accepted and important results flow from it. It colours all our discussions on home economic policy. There follows from this the doctrine of full employment. The acceptance of this again colours our whole conception of the post-war setup in this country. You will appreciate that in discussions with cabinet colleagues not of our party, the full acceptance of these conceptions concedes much of our case in advance. Now, as he said, the case for socialism had been made during the war and emphasised by memories of what happened after the first war, the supposed betrayal, uh, but the second war was to be a people's war followed by a people's peace. And uh, the Attlee government did, um, I think, um, lay uh, the foundations of what became a post-war settlement. It set the weather for perhaps even up to today. Um, and um, Margaret Thatcher tried to undermine parts of it, but some of it shouldn't. Incidentally, she, in her memoirs, pays great tribute to Attlee. She was a great radical patriot, greatly admired him. But um, a, a lot of Attlee's um, uh, legacy, I think, still remains. But the post-war period, I think, if you like, set the whole framework for the future. Now, um, what was the settlement and how did it come about during the war? I mentioned a few moments ago the Beveridge Report, and that was absolutely crucial. Uh, it came out in December 1942, in the middle of the war. It had a huge sale. 100,000 copies were sold in the first month. An abridged edition sold 600,000 copies shortly afterwards. No government document outsold it until the Denning Report on the Profumo Affair in 1963. <laughs> And uh, Beatrice Webb uh, predicted that this would be a bomb thrown into the political arena, and so it was, because uh, it uh, uh, suggested widespread change. It was dismissed by the Conservatives as a blunder. I think this was Churchill's crucial blunder. He dismissed it as false hopes and airy visions of utopia and El Dorado. And people said, the Conservatives said, we can't afford it. And the Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Kingsley Wood, Many in this country have persuaded themselves, he said, the cessation of hostilities will mark the opening of the golden age. Many were so persuaded last time also. However this may be, the time for declaring a dividend on the golden age is the time when these profits have been realised, in fact, not merely in imagination. Well, that idea might have been thought sensible in the 1920s and 30s, and you might think it's sensible now, don't have these social advances and you can afford to pay for them. But that wasn't what people thought then. They said, we've been cheated last time and we want them now. And people were worried that the Conservatives would stop the implementation of the Beveridge Report. Now, in February 1943, there was a Labour backbench motion uh, which the government resisted that uh, the Beveridge Report should be put into immediate effect. And uh, 121 
MPs voted for that amendment, which was against the government. 97 Labour MPs voted for it, and only two Labour backbenchers out of the government actually supported the government. So the Labour Party as a whole voted for the immediate implementation of Beveridge. Interesting enough, Lloyd George, this was his last vote in Parliament, he voted the great old social reformer, he too voted for this uh, amendment. And that was when Labour became, uh, I think, the majority party in the country. It got that mood, uh, understood the mood. The idea of social security for all from the cradle to the grave. Now, Beveridge said there were five giants that had to be slain. And those giants were want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness. And his report was primarily dealing with want. The disease of um, uh, the disease would be dealt with by Nye Bevan's health service. Squalor would be dealt with by the Labour Party's programme in municipal housing. Education uh, idleness was being dealt with by the 1944 white paper of the coalition government proposing universal secondary education for all. Uh, and uh, idleness was also going to be dealt with by... Uh, the doctrine of full employment. Now, uh, Beveridge said that um, his um, um, plans uh, had three assumptions built into them. The first was that in the post-war period, we'd have full employment. Because, he said, uh, his insurance system cannot insure against mass unemployment. And we'd seen that. I think those who were here at the lectures um, last year, saw how the insurance system broke down with mass unemployment. And um, there were hopes that were actually met that unemployment could be kept below 3%. That was the doctrine of the white paper on full employment in 1944. And in the immediate post-war years, it was much below that. So in practice, there was full employment. And that meant you could insure against other employment which would be purely transitional and interruption to earnings. You could insure against that. And anyone in that position would be benefited from the insurance fund. Now, the welfare state uh, is sometimes, I think, caricatured as a kind of charter for malingerers, and Beveridge had no sympathy with that at all. Uh, he said that um, anyone who wasn't prepared to work should be sent to a compulsory retraining camp. And um, he said that young people who weren't working should be given no benefit at all, that they should get trained and get a job. He wasn't the caricature of Santa Claus, it is sometimes thought. Indeed, in his own life, he was highly austere. Uh, he used to wake up at six o'clock to an icy bath and do two hours' work before breakfast. Uh, during the war, after his report was issued, he became, for a brief time, a Liberal MP from 1944 to 5, and he was defeated in 1945, became leader in the House of Lords of the Liberals. But he wasn't um, uh, in any way, uh, if you like, a softy. So that was his first presupposition that there should be full employment. The second presupposition that there should be family allowances, because poverty in large families could not be dealt with by insurance. And that would remove, he said, the most single important cause of poverty. Now, that was introduced by the caretaker Conservative government, which succeeded the coalition while they were preparing for an election 
1945, family allowances were introduced. And significantly, these allowances were not means-tested um, because if they had been, the low-paid with better families, sorry, the low-paid with large families would be better off out of work unless the benefit rates were dangerously low. So if you wanted decent benefits, uh, they would not be means-tested. Now, the third presupposition of the Beveridge Report was that there should be a national health service. And that would be particularly important, Beveridge thought, because it would restore the sick to the labour market very rapidly. And he said that was a hidden benefit of the National Health Service, which does not show in the account books. Now, the National Health Service also, in his view, should not be based on insurance, but financed by the taxpayer. So these uh, three areas are presupposition, full employment, family allowances funded by the taxpayer, and then a National Health Service funded by the taxpayer. Then he said all the remaining Social Security problems could be dealt with by national insurance. And in return, he said, for a single weekly contribution, you would receive a pension, sickness benefit, and unemployment benefit when you were uh, unemployed. And that would apply to everyone, all wage earners, all the self-employed and their families. So it was a unified, a new unified system in place of the piecemeal patchwork. Social Security is a single system which would cover everyone in the country, but not to be financed out of taxation, but out of contributions. And that was fundamental for Beveridge because he said that was a mark of citizenship. He said benefit, you may think this is optimistic, he said benefits in return for contributions rather than free allowances is what the people of Britain desire. They don't want something for nothing, unless they're optimistic. They want benefits in return for contributions. And the important thing, that it would be universal and not just for those in need. The majority of people who get the benefits would not be in need. And that was fundamental for Beveridge, because he said, if you're going to get the welfare state to work, you have to have a middle-class constituency for it. He said, if it's just residual and applies just to the poor, there'll be no political pressures to keep up the standards. But if it benefits everyone, you will have those uh, standards. And so it's much easier to finance the welfare state if the middle classes are involved in it, if they receive the benefits for which they pay taxes. So you get what you pay for, and you don't pay more than your neighbours. Now, Beveridge did admit that there would be some people... Uh, who uh, just couldn't work under the system. So you'd have public assistance for those, and that would be means-tested out of taxation. There'd be some people he regarded a small proportion of what he called inadequates, who would not be able to work or um, help society. Um, and that, that would be funded out of taxation and therefore means-tested, but this is a residual element. And he said... Um, to a delegation of trade unionists. There are not many people who will not behave properly. Again, you may think that's optimistic. There are not many people who will not behave properly, but those who do not behave properly have got to be made to do so. So there'd be a stigma attached in those days to getting what he called public assistance. And Beveridge said, thought there's no irreducible class of effectless, perhaps a small number of inadequates, but no feckless and lazy people who didn't want to work. Everyone, he thought, wanted to work. Now, the advance of this system, as he put it forward, were huge. First, you end the degrading means test of the interwar years, where you had to prove uh, your income and, uh, and who you were cohabiting with and all the rest. Secondly, there was no supervision of individual behaviour. Were you genuinely seeking work or not? Uh, the only test was whether you'd made your contributions. And insurance would be a badge of citizenship. It would encourage work and saving, 
uh, also an encouragement to voluntary action thrift because people could get more benefits than the compulsory ones if they saved and took out their own private uh, social security schemes, pension schemes, or private sickness insurance, whatever it is. There'll be more of that. Now, all this was attacked from the right wing as um, uh, going to lead to fecklessness and laziness, which Beveridge hadn't wanted. And one um, right-wing uh, MP, um, A.P. Herbert, uh, produced a jingle at the time the Beveridge Report came out. He said, oh, won't it be wonderful after the war? There won't be no rich and there won't be no poor. We'll all get a pension about 24 and we won't have to work if we find it a bore. Oh, won't it be wonderful after the war? The beer will be better and quicker and more. And there's only one thing I would like to explore. Why didn't we have this old war before? But this is very unfair. Beveridge, I should say, hated the term welfare state. He never used it, didn't like it. He said he wa it wasn't a Santa Claus state, something for nothing. The phrase he liked was a social service state. The social service, he didn't like welfare state. Because what he meant was that everyone should be a citizen. A bit like New Labour's vision in some Everyone should be a citizen. Now the weaknesses of the system even then were quite striking, I think. The first was it didn't make proper provision, perhaps you couldn't in those days, for women, because the vast majority of women were not in the labour market. Seven-eighths of married women at that time did not work. And so the benefit they got were, was based on their husband's contribution. And the benefit for employed married women was lower than that for the men, since the men provided the home, and uh, the more important that they should be provided for. But most important of all, uh, the... Um, single woman at home who'd be caring for elderly relatives, which there are a large number then, certainly, were not getting any benefit at all, and they had to rely on public assistance. Nevertheless, one uh, female Labour MP, Edith Summerskill, said Beveridge was a new Magna Carta for women on the grounds that it treated women equally but differently, that married women were part, seen as part of the team, as it were, and the, the benefit was calculated in that way. Secondly, uh, Beveridge presumed full employment, which began to collapse in the 1970s, and you could then be unemployed through no fault of your own for quite long periods, as had happened in the interwar years. Thirdly, uh, benefits, uh, Beveridge said, should be above subsistence level, but they were being eroded gradually by inflation. And gradually, as we all know, the pension came to be much lower than the subsistence level, and now there are about 10 million people on means-tested relief. Uh, which Beveridge did not want. Um, and the contributory insurance idea is a useful fiction. In 1999, the Inland Revenue and the Contributions Agency merged, and in national insurance is now just a kind of poll tax. Uh, it's not really any form of insurance. And what we do now is to um, fund out of direct taxation with a means test, targeting the poor, which is exactly what Beveridge didn't want. And the... Um, a further point is the greater resistance to high taxation in the post-war period. In 1945, taxation would be paid by a married man with two children just above average earnings. Now someone on 30% of average earnings is paying income tax, so that more people are brought into taxation. And the current system is much more like the means-tested system that Beveridge sought to replace. It's, it's a paradox on the whole thing. A welfare state, Beveridge hated the phrase, he would have hated what we have now, a means-tested system entirely. And for this reason, that the system has become residual, it's a benefit for the poor only who use it, so it doesn't have middle-class support. 
And that's why there's much more of a political constituency for spending on the health service and on education, which education almost everyone uses, the health service everyone uses, much more of a political constituency for spending on that than there is on social security. Now, uh, Beveridge, you may say also, made some very optimistic assumptions about human beings, and that's the deepest change that's, I think, occurred since the 1940s. We had the Dunkirk spirit uh, at the time, the end of rationing, planning, solidarity, all that's gone away, the idea of service, all gone away. One of the reasons why Nye Bevan was so hostile to charges in the health service was he said it implied people weren't using it responsibly. He said, of course, the British people will be responsible with the health service. And uh, the only reason that health expenditures increase is the deficit from the 1930s. But you shouldn't assume that people will use the health service irresponsibly. And in a lecture in 1950 to the Fabian Society, Bev Bevan, Nye Bevan said he wanted to create a new kind of authoritarian society. That shocked people. And he said, one where the authority of moral purpose is freely undertaken. That's what the Labour Party is about that people, in particular the working class, can be motivated by something other than the capitalist incentives of fear and acquisition. And he said full employment would diminish fear and austerity, because they were holding down consumption with rationing and so on, that'll diminish the possibility of acquisition. Capitalism, he said, breeds the desire for instant gratification. Socialism teaches people to strive for better things. He said, look about you, he said in 1950, absenteeism is down, uh, work, production's up, we've got voluntary wage restraint. He said, this meant that all these uh, ideas in beverage can actually uh, work. But from the 1950s onwards, there was an emphasis on affluence and consumption uh, and uh, move away from the collective society and move from the left to right. Societies moved rightward since. Now, I haven't finished what I want to say about the Labour government. Next time, I will talk about the National Health Service and the other reforms and achievements of the government. I, I want to say this, that there's been a, a, a movement to the right fairly steadily, I think, um, certainly up to Margaret Thatcher, then perhaps slight reversal, but we've not gone back to Attlee. And as I said, the Labour Party just lost the election of 1951 by Whisker, by 17 seats, but it got more votes than the Conservatives. Now... Any government that would win the 1951 election would almost certainly win the elections of the 1950s because you had a world boom, consumption boom, and so on. And sometimes people talk about post-war consensus. But I want to put to you the um, uh, proposition that suppose the Labour Party had won in 1951, might we have moved in that direction that Attlee and Bevan foresaw towards a different kind of society? In other words, might we have moved in towards a Scandinavian uh, direction, become a Scandinavian sort of social democracy, perhaps higher rates of taxation, um, greater role for the state, the public sector. Might Britain have become what Nye Bevan hoped it would become, uh, a social democratic kind of laboratory? Uh, it seems to me a possibility, and I'll just end with a comment Bevan made rather sad at the end of his life. He died in 1960. And after Labour had lost it, the 1959 election, the third one in a row, he said the British working class had its historic opportunity, but it missed it. And is that part of the history of what might have happened in the post-war years, that that turning, which we almost took, or were we going not to take that turning anyway? In other words, were the, uh, the assumptions of socialism, of Attlee and Bevan, and so just so contrary to human nature, 
that uh, they would never have been fulfilled and we would have moved in that market direction uh, whatever the result of the 1951 election. Of course, that's an unanswerable question, which is why I ask it. But um, uh, uh, I will continue next time with the National Health Service and the other achievements of the Labour government. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website, www.gresham.ac.uk.